0: Luke chapter 5. Good evening New Hope. Good to see all of you. Welcome. Awesome. Um, welcome good to see you. I, I'm going to say the same thing over and over again. We do this every single week. Good to see all of you. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, so grateful uh, for many of your prayers and texts and encouragements. Uh, To my family and I, we are doing much better. Thank you for those who don't know. uh, I was out sick the last uh, two Sundays um, and on vacation the week before that. And so it's been a long time since I've gotten to see many of your faces and so miss each and every one of you. Two weeks ago, I uh, had the cold and was running a fever there, got over that, uh, was better Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then got the fever and got sick again. Uh, throughout the weekend, finally went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, you had a cold week one, that turned into a sinus infection a few days later, and so, uh, but we are all better, uh, antibiotics does wonders to your body, and so grateful for for that. Hey, can somebody grab the lights for me, please? That would be great. Thank you. Awesome. Hey, Luke chapter 5, we're beginning a new series That I'm simply calling dinner parties, and you'll understand the reason for that uh, here in a moment, uh, but we're looking at uh, this series, and let me tell you kind of the goal and the purpose of this series. We'll be in this series, honestly, I'm not positive, probably five, six, seven weeks, definitely up to Easter as we look at this, but here are... Here's the goal of this series. We just got done with the vision series uh, a month ago. Last time I got I had the privilege of preaching to you all. It feels like forever ago. Um, but it was supposed to be the very next kind of week we were doing this. But out of that vision series, a question I got, rightfully so, well, what are practical ways that we do this? If our mission is to engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time, what are some practical ways that we can do this? And there's a lot of answers to that, but this series... Uh, attempts to answer that question with at least this answer as we look at this idea of the meals that Jesus has in the book of Luke. And so this is uh, a practical series, as practical as I think I can come up with, on how we answer this question. It is focused on Jesus. There are a lot of places we could have gone to see how, uh, scripture defines of someone engaging their city or engaging their culture, but there's no better place than to look at the person of Jesus. And so the purpose is to look at how Jesus does this. It is a topical study, which means we are not going to study Luke exhaustively, but we are going to look at uh, some of the ten times in the book of Luke that Jesus has a meal with somebody. I want just think about that reality, that Luke records ten meals that Jesus has... And we're going to probably not look at all of them, but we will look at exclusively those stories within the book of Luke. And we're going to try to stay in one book for a reason, because we can see a consistent um, theme and a consistent writing of how Luke uh, portrays this. Another goal of this series, or an intention of the series, is to be theological. You're like, hold on a second, how are we going to be theological with Mills? The last time I picked up a systematic theology book, if anybody ever did pick up a systematic theology book, if you have... There's not a chapter on the uh, dinner theology or dinner doctrines. There's not a theology on food and meals. But when we begin to think about this, meals are uh, 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 very theological, and I'll show you how, and they fit into a lot of theological ideas. So let me give some examples. Is that when Jesus in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament introduces very sacred covenants, he often does it over a meal. We think about the Passover and the importance of the Passover in the Old Testament. And we think about the Lord's Supper, the importance of that in the New Testament. Two key ideas dealing with covenant and a uh, past on generation to generation. What are they? They are meals. And so Jesus does something practical through that way with meals. Even in how he created us, most of us uh, on average will eat three meals a day. Uh, that's not by happenstance. I think that's very physical, obviously, because it's a need in how we nourish our body. But we, as we study scripture and look at how God's created us, we see a picture of spiritual realities in the physical. So, for example, um, if... Uh, you were to eat one time a week, and that's the only time you eat, you would be unhealthy and starving. And we can give that a picture of if we were to only come to God's word one time a week, we would be spiritually emotional and starving. And so even that, we see analogy of how God causes us to provide for ourselves physically. We see a spiritual reality in that. When we think about it from an end times perspective, understanding that one day God will call us home and he, we will spend eternity with him, He describes that celebration as a feast. He describes that celebration as a dinner party that we will get to have with Him. Not specific to meals, but when we think about hospitality, hospitality is a doctrine and a theology that we see uh, displayed all throughout Scripture of how we are to love and be hospitable to one another. And that often is pictured when given a story over a meal. And so I'm not just randomly picking meals, but I'm intentionally picking meals because of how we see them as relational centers for people. Relational on a lot of different topics. Tonight we're just going to cover one of those topics. But in the weeks to come, we'll look at all the different types of relationships just in the book of Luke alone of how Jesus encounters and deals with relationships. So here's my challenges through this series. Three challenges. The first is that you would grow in intimacy with Christ. When we think about meals, um, we see them as a picture of intimacy and relationship with Christ. When we think about the Lord's Supper, which we will take together tonight, it's a picture uh, and it's a reminder of what Christ did for us so that we could have a relationship with Him. When He talks about communion with Him, it's often a picture of a meal. And so this idea of meals is an invitation for intimacy and relationship with with God. Another challenge, challenge number two through this series, I hope that you and I would see that how we can leverage meals, something we eat and do every single day, we, how we can leverage meals to live missional, how we can leverage meals to build community, how we can use meals to foster unity and reconciliation, how we can use meals for discipleship, counseling, and even fellowship. There's so much that is uh, interwoven into the event of a meal other than just simply nourishing our bodies. Challenge number three is that simply you would be more intentional with the meals that you have every single day. Luke chapter 5, let us jump into the first story. If everybody's with me in Luke 5, would you say amen? If you don't have a Bible, please grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which is the black uh, hardback Bible, and see backs in front of you, and we will be on page 861, 861 in that black ESV Bible. It reads this: After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you have a handout, we'll fill in truth number one. Truth number one, as we look at this text we see the missional motive of Christ. The missional motive of Christ. Let me read verses 30 and 32 again. 30 through 32. Uh, Pharisees asked, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I understand being sick and in need of a physician. Just recently, we've all understood this, but just even recently, I have understood this. I've been out sick for the last two weeks have I, have I? as I've explained, and me, like many of you, are stubborn and refuse to go to the doctor. And so, because I got better after a couple of days, and then I was better, and then I got sick, and I kept telling myself, well, eventually I'll get sick again. I did last time. I mean, I'll get better again. I did last time. And I never got better, and then finally my wife went to the doctor, and she got antibiotics, and then I realized I should probably go to the doctor too. So then I went to the doctor, and I got antibiotics. Because, but while at the doctor, the doctor said this to me, that you have a sinus infection, and because I have a history, especially of sinus infections, she said this was not going away without, without some meds. Like you could have fought this off forever, and you would have continued to fight this fever, but this wasn't going away. You had to have antibiotics, and she, you had to have some steroids, and she gave me both. And when we think about that illustration, it's applicable even in the timing of this, as we look at uh, what Jesus is saying here when he says that uh, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. Uh, Likewise, all of us are sick in sin, that all of us have a sickness within us that needs an outside physician to bring help in the same way that I could not heal myself, that I needed a professional who could write me a a script for some meds that I couldn't get on my own. In the same way I need some help on the outside to bring healing, you and I in our sin likewise need help. In the same way that we are all sinners, we have this eternal sickness that you and I cannot heal. And the missional motive of Jesus, I want us to see this, is to call sinners unto repentance. As sinners or someone who has chosen to disobey God and live life how they see best, We have this incurable disease called sin, as Scripture says, and we need a great physician. The missional motive of Jesus is to be that great physician in our lives. It is to bring healing to the sick. Now, although I do believe that God heals physically in miraculous ways, and I believe we pray to that end... This is not what he's referring to. He's not referring to physical illness with this illustration. He's, he's referring to a spiritual illness. And so I, when I use this idea in this sermon tonight as this physician who brings healing, I'm referring to it in a spiritual sense. And it's an, simply an illustration that I'm using because Jesus used. When I had a sinus infection, I was sick. But overall... Um, I was still a healthy human being, right? I I wasn't healthy enough to be here. Some of you are like, well, if you're healthy, then why weren't you here? But I wasn't healthy enough to be here. But but the doctor wasn't concerned about my overall well-being because I was still a healthy human being. But I, I just had this sickness that was a part of my overall whole. As we think about the illustration of a physician and a sickness, as we look at this passage, it's an illustration that falls short in some ways. What do I mean that it falls short? It doesn't fall short because in the sense that Jesus isn't the great physician, it falls short because if we're not careful, we can think of sickness as simply a part of an overall healthy being, spiritually, of that we are. If we're not careful, we can look at this illustration and think, well, I'm an overall good person. I just had this little bit of sickness called sin about me. I just need someone to come in and kind of give me some meds or, or help me out. But overall, I'm still a good, healthy human being, and I'm okay but this is where the illustration falls short. Because Scripture doesn't say that you and I are sick in sin. Scripture says that you and I are dead in sin. Two very different things. When I'm sick, I need a physician. When I'm dead, I need someone to do this miraculous thing and raise me to life. Ephesians 2 says that you are dead in trespasses and sins. We don't just need someone to heal us. We need someone to raise us from the dead. Ephesians 2.5 goes on to say that while we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that Christ made us alive. He resurrected us. By grace we have been saved. And he's raised us up with Christ. And seated us with Christ. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus understands this reality. That you and I can't heal ourselves. That you and I have this sickness. And this is precisely his motive. That he talks about in this passage. That he has come to save. This, to save not the uh, uh, healthy but the sinner. He is called not, he's come not to call the righteous, but the sinners unto repentance. And how does he do this? Just like a doctor who draws near to the patient. When I was at the doctor, it was a Saturday, so, so I didn't go to my doctor. I went to those like one-minute clinics. They're not one minute, but they're called one-minute clinics. I went to those one-minute clinics in, in like a CVS or Walgreens or something like that. And, uh, so, but they don't give a lot of room. And I remember... There were people in line in front of me that had gone, and I'm just thinking, this this doctor has been in this room that's about the size of right here where this piano is with all these sick people all day long. And I'm just thinking, a poor lady, like, she's going to go home sick. If she didn't come sick, she's going home sick. Like, like, how how can she avoid it? But in the same way, a, a doctor, because they have been gifted and trained and equipped to bring healing, a doctor draws near to that which is sick in the same way this is precisely what Jesus is doing and not only in this story but with the reality of his life in John chapter 1 in the word this is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us this is the beauty of the Christian faith even in contrast to all other belief systems in the world is all other belief systems all the other religions in some way will explain salvation to a God that is up there that we cannot know, that is transcendent. They'll explain salvation in a way of something we do to heal ourselves. But this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is He understood that we weren't just sick and needed a little help, but that we were dead, and that so therefore He came and He drew near to us. He was the one and only great physician that could bring life, and He wasn't like a doctor. Imagine a doctor in this scenario a doctor is trained, but through their training, they realize all the germs in the world, even more so. And, and they go, you know what, there's just too much sickness in the world. And because of my, now that I'm aware of all these things, I'm actually going to avoid all the sick people in the world. Now, you, you, can't, you can't help nobody doing that, right? But you can't, as a doctor, see the sickness and go, you know what, I'm going to go live in a bubble so that I'm, so I'm healthy. But a doctor has been equipped to draw near because they've been equipped to bring healing. And listen to me, that because of our sickness, because of our sin, understanding sin as rebellion against a loving and holy God, that we have sinned against Him, therefore He is the only one who can offer us the healing that we need. So He, the one and only person who is able to bring this life, drew near to us in order to bring life to us. Earlier in the chapter, we see that Jesus heals Someone with leprosy, he heals a leper. Now, leprosy is is this physical skin disease. In Leviticus chapter thirteen, those who are with us in the one year reading, uh, we are we are neck deep in Leviticus um, and loving every minute of it. Absolutely not, but. Leviticus is tough, because it says stuff like this in Leviticus 13. It lays out this skin disease, leprosy, and how you are to handle it. And it it says that if you have someone in your community that has leprosy, they are to come into contact with no one, and you are to excommunicate them out of the community, and you are to put them out away from everybody so that they don't infect anybody. Right? Because they are considered unclean and unholy, and if you touch them, they make you unclean and unholy. But earlier in this passage in Luke chapter 5, what happens? Jesus encounters a leper, and Jesus does not avoid the person, but puts his hand down and touches the person and heals them. We've got to see the beauty of this, because when we think about the physical element of leprosy, it's a physical picture of sin, in the sense that it's a visual of uncleanliness. It's a visual of unholiness from the Levit- Levitical law, But Jesus doesn't avoid it, but Jesus draws near. Jesus is the one and only person who has the ability to touch that which is unclean and be able to pass on his righteousness to that which is unclean as opposed to that which is unclean passing on uncleanliness onto Jesus. He has the unique ability to step in, and this is precisely what he does. So let's not miss the reality of Luke as he writes this story that he puts these two things together. He puts the picture of what Jesus does physically by drawing near and touching the leper to healing to then draw near to tax collectors and sinners. As he draws near to them, he is putting his hand of touch and healing on them tonight. Let me ask this question for those who are Christians in the room tonight. When we think about... Uh, The response of first, Jesus, and second, the Pharisees. We see two very unique and different responses. We see a response from religious leaders who know the law, who know God's commandments, and who are the leaders in the community of God, seeing the sin and the brokenness of those around them and separate themselves from them out of religious duty. And then second, we see Christ, who more than even the religious leaders Sees that which is broken, that which is hurt, and draws near to. So let me ask this question tonight as we look at those two. Those who are are Christians in here. How do you and I respond in similar situations? Alright, how do we respond? Because when we look out these walls, when we look inside these walls, there is hurt and there is brokenness. See, when we think about those who are sinners, if you will, uh, those who don't know Jesus, I'm just using the language from the passage when we look at non-Christians in the world around us, if we're not careful in our, in our religious arrogance, we can see those as less than. We can see those as they don't know something. They, they don't get it. They, they're, they're, they, they don't understand God's word and, and all these things. But the reality is when we think about those who have yet to know Christ, they're really not all that different than you and I. See, you and I both, all of us, are sinners who cannot heal ourselves. All of us are sinners who are in desperate need of salvation. The difference between me as a believer really and someone else as a non-believer is not that I don't have sin and they do have sin, but simply that I've received Jesus who has given me life and forgiveness in sin and that person hasn't. The difference isn't between me and them. The difference is between me and Jesus and them and Jesus. But if we're not careful, we can put on the lens of the religious leaders and we can look on them with this uh, religious in a negative sense of, of arrogance and pride and think we're better than but when Christ is actually calling us to draw near do we avoid those that are not like us out of religious responsibility and I want to draw your attention you might have missed this but in um, uh, verse 29 it says Levi made for him a great feast in his house and there were a large company of tax collectors and others Luke uses the language others But then he quotes the Pharisees as saying this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? He calls them sinners ultimately because they're different than than the Pharisees. They're sinners because they're maybe of a different culture, maybe because they're not Jewish, because tax collectors are are, are, um, those who are kind of in between the Roman and Jewish culture who are what? They're taking money from the Jewish people and giving to the Roman people. They're considered, uh, uh, they've committed treason against the Jewish people. And so they've become friends with, uh, uh, with non-Jews. So it's potential that there may be some Gentiles there or there, are others. there were other sinners by religious standards. But the point is the Pharisees saw them as others and put the label as sinners. If we're not careful, how often do we likewise just simply see people who are different from us as less than us Because we are looking at them through religious arrogance simply than the love of Christ. The missional motive of Jesus was to draw near to sinners. When we think about this doctor-patient illustration, that we have received healing as Christians, but we've also been given the gift to share and show that healing to others. Let me ask you this question before we move to point number two. Is your missional motive to avoid or to draw near? To engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time, as that is our mission statement. This means that we will be motivated to draw near to those whom the pharisaical religious leaders say we must be separate from. That we must draw near in love on them. Okay, Pastor Jonathan, now, now how do we do that? Truth number two, we'll see the missional method of Christ. First, we see the motivation of Christ. Second, we see the mytho- missional method of Christ how how does he do it in this passage and this is the whole point really the picture of the series he has a meal with them the method of Jesus that he chooses in this passage is to draw near through a meal verse 29 Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him now granted Levi is the one who threw the dinner party not Jesus But, but listen to me just because Jesus didn't throw the dinner party doesn't mean that he didn't didn't affirm it. His tendance is an affirmation of it. The fact that he was welcomed and came and he was uh, the person of honor within the party, um, he's affirming it. And this is the moment at this party where he chooses to communicate through the visual of the party his missional motive of drawing near to sinners. He uses a meal to do so. Let's not breeze past this idea that he is at a dinner party. Jesus is making a strong statement, not only with his words in this passage, but also simply that he's at with a me- having a meal. Sharing a meal with someone is what? It's, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of friendship and unity. Uh, not only today, but especially in Jesus' time, meals are more than just simply consuming nourishment. Meals are ways in which we pursue and strengthen relationships with other people. Think about it from a dating relationship. When Jen and I started dating the second time, now, we're not going to get into the first time, but the second time, let's just skip all that wonderful history. But when we started dating the second time, the first time we hung out after a, a while was over coffee. I, I figured it'd be easier to ease in by asking her to come, come grab some coffee than going jumping straight back into a meal, right? Because a meal's more official, right? But a coffee's more casual, a coffee's more relaxed. You know, it, it's, just, it's, just, it's just easier to, to ease back into that. But then we had coffee and that went well. So then what? I asked her to dinner. And then eventually we did dinner for a few months and then eventually we did dinner at one another's parents' houses again. It, what is that? That's a progression of intimacy and relationship as it relates to meals. When we think about meals and we think about the context of who, where, and when we eat with people, it says a lot about who those people are to us. When you invite someone into your home, you're saying, I value you. I value your friendship. I want to pursue a friendship with you, whether it's in a dating relationship or just friendship, what you're doing is you're saying that I care about you, that I want you to be a part of my life, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. Jesus here, by eating a meal with them, is doing dinner theology. He's doing theology through this meal. The Pharisees clearly understood that Jesus, by being there was not condemning them in their sinfulness. Now, he's not condoning either, and we've talked about this, is how do we engage our city with the love of Jesus? And when we talk about the love of Jesus, Jesus had the ability to not condemn people in their sin, but neither condone them in their sin, but meet them right in the middle, love on them, graciously show them their need for him, and then offer salvation in himself. Likewise, we as Christians, as we engage our city with the love of Jesus, that we do so practically by simply inviting people into relationship with us through the avenue of meals, Jesus had a meal, and he was being very uh, verbal, if you will, in what he was saying to the Pharisees around him. the Pharisees couldn 't imagine they were appalled by this that Jesus was eating with people that were different, that he was eating with sinners, that he was eating with with people who uh, weren't you know weren 't all uh, clean, but they, by religious standards, were unclean. Here's what the Pharisees were doing. Listen to this. Don't get this. Don't miss this. The Pharisees were saying, Hey, you are sinners. Before we can associate with you, you need to get it all worked out, and then you need to meet me at the temple. Where Jesus said, No, no, no. The reality is, I understand that people can't get it worked out on their, their own. It's the beauty of the gospel. And so instead of saying, Hey, y'all get it all together and then come to me, Jesus said, They'll never get it all together, and we won't. I won't. You won't. None of us will. And instead, he says, that's all right, I'll I'll come and eat a meal with you. I'll come straight to you. He is making a rich theological statement by simply having a meal with tax collectors and others. The contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees is, is pretty simple. Pharisees wouldn't draw near, Jesus would draw near. One of the practical ways he did it was simply through a meal. How do we engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time? One of the primary we, ways we do it is we have meals with people in this city. Let me ask you this question just as a question really of application. If you, who you eat with it, it, where it was to be the only diagnostic or the only survey or how, whatever word you want to use there, to say am I more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees if you were to look at who you've eaten with in the last couple months which side would you end up on or would you end up with on the Pharisee side, who only ate with people like you whether that was culturally like you whether that was belief system like you or, or were you would you see that hey by the grace of God I, I have engaged my city in such a way that who I eat with has shown my desire to pursue people who are in desperate need of Jesus Our mission is not to call the righteous, but like Jesus, our mission, His mission has been passed on to us. We are to call sinners unto repentance, just like us. We are to use our word, our testimony and God's word to reveal this truth. Who we eat meals with will determine how much we're really actually engaged in the mission that God has given us. On average, we all eat three meals a day. My challenge to you is that you would find ways to use these meals to be intentional. Uh, maybe a lunch meal with a coworker Just ask them to lunch and hang out with them and begin to build a relationship with them, begin to invest in their lives. You and I live in a very secular, individualistic culture that, that people want to be left alone. And that's because of that even, that relationships are all that much more important when it comes to Uh, this idea of sharing the gospel people now let me give a word of caution as i give this challenge practically of how we engage our city by simply inviting people over to your home by having a meal with someone by having coffee by having these relational moments with people who are different from us who aren't in our church who who don't know christ let me give a word of caution we do not share meals solely for the purpose of trying to convert people to christianity I'm not saying that's not a primary focus in the sense that we're not trying to convert people to think like us. We're trying to, we're trying to simply let people see that there's a Jesus out there who loves them. So, but my point is, we, we are. if your heart motive, you've got to check your heart motive. If my motive for you this week, or for yourself, if I say, if my motive, Jonathan, is for me to leave this week and invite someone over to my house so that I can convince them to become a Christian, or even convince them to give their life to Jesus... If that's the only reason I'm doing it, you're still missing the point. Now, a primary goal of ours, absolutely, is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray that God would call sinners unto repentance. Listen to me, you and I don't save people, God saves sinners, right? And so he's in his saving work. But listen to me, we, if you, if you pursue someone in relationships only, only for the purpose of seeing them give their life to Jesus, then you're pursuing them as a project and not as a person. Too often, this has been the case. When you have conversations with people outside the church and they will say, the church shouldn't proselytize, the church shouldn't evangelize, the church shouldn't do these things. Why? Because people have felt proselytized as a project and not cared for as a person. The church must get back to treating people like people. And so my encouragement to you is I pray that you would, this week, engage in a missional meal to love on somebody, even if they never give their life to Jesus now that would break our heart and we desire for people to give their lives to Jesus because we really see and believe that Christ has changed our lives he changed my life this is good news and I want other people to respond to it but please understand that God's called us to love our neighbors not love your neighbors if they eventually think like you or not love your neighbors if they're perfect and nice to you or not love your neighbors this 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 or this but it's just simply to love our neighbors and so as we as Christians, as we engage in loving our community, as we engage in loving on our neighbors, as we invite them into our homes, as we have meals with them, let us just love them for who they are. And let's, yes, pray for them, and let's pray with them, and yes, let's share the gospel with them. But let that not be the only reason we do it. Let it be simply because we see God's image in them, that you and I are created in God's image, and so we love all human beings because they bear the image of God my challenge to you is if you were to look at your meals what's your dinner theology what is your dinner theology and we're going to look at in the weeks to come all the different types of relationships that are strengthened and built and we're going to look at others of how the church can eat together and how all these things absolutely but tonight is on the focus of how are we using food For the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel. How are we using food for missions?